Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. We have the privilege of bringing the Parsha class on the road, not on the road actually, on the sea, on our uh, first ever inaugural Boker Tov Synagogue Empty Nester Cruise. And we'll do an abridged class because I know I'm the only thing stopping you from your excursion and relaxation here in the Heilige Bahamas. So we have the privilege of learning Parsha's Kisisa together. Parsha's Kisisa represents a major shift to Jewish people. We're coasting. We've been taken out of Mitzrayim. Hashem has shown us tremendous affection, love, divine providence, ten plagues and the splitting of the sea, and this monumental seminal moment, the milestone of the giving of the Torah that changed the course of human history. Hashem shared His blueprint for creation with us. And then, Parshas Mishpatim, Marishonim Sinai, just as the spiritual highs were authentic and genuine, so too, its application, its execution in the real world. And then, Parshas Parshas Yisro, the Mishpatim, Truma Tetzava, the Mishkan, finding a physical edifice. We spoke last week, two weeks ago, Veshachanti Besocham, by Jonathan Sachs, Veshachanti Shachain. We want Hashem, Hashem desires not just to be the God of the Elyonim, a God who is distant, aloof, all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient. He wants to be a God who's relatable, who's accessible, who's a Shachain, who's our neighbor right next door, who's our confidant, who's our best friend. And so Hashras Hashchina, Shchina Shachain, he institutes the building of the Mishkan. And then we get to Parshas Kisisa. And after this direct line coming out of Mitzrayim, that's worked well, gone well, of connection, we have a major shift. The first broken moments, a violation of the relationship itself. But beforehand, Parsha begins with the taking of a census. Kisisa is Rosh Bnei Yisrael of Kudayim, Benosnu Ish Kofer Nafshel Hashem Bifkod Osam Liyanabayim Negev Bifkod Osam. When you take the census of the children of the Jewish people, according to their numbers, each one gives. And why do they give? And us knew why? Why the us knew? Ish kofer nafsha. What is the word kofer? Kofer means atonement, like kapara. On Yom Kippur we seek and we achieve a kapara. But more strictly, the definition is, kofer kapara means redemption. What does it mean to redeem one's soul? What does the word redemption mean? that one has to redeem oneself or redeem one's soul. And how does one do that? Through the giving of a census. Rabbi Soloveitchik writes, Hashem requires each person to redeem himself, to buy himself back from God. The entire world is consecrated or hectish. The only legal means by which we are allowed to use hectish is through redemption. The halachic means to redeem an object is a trade. One can exchange the hectish item with a non-hectish item. The non-consecrated item takes on the consecrated status of the item it is being traded for, while the hectish item takes on the secular nature of the non-consecrated item. So if something was dedicated to the base make Dutch, if something was given the status, the consecrated status of hectish, one could redeem it of that status, you could transfer that status. Like my Sashani, Hektish, there are certain opportunities where you can transfer sacred status, thereby releasing the object you want personal benefit from of its sacred or consecrated status, and projecting or transferring it onto something else. That's the notion of Kofar, of redeeming. So, how does that apply to us? Why is the Torah employing specifically that word to describe what we're doing? Said the Rav, one's body, one's clothes, one's children, the entire universe requires redemption to allow us to make use of them. Yet what can man possibly offer in trade that could affect such a redemption? The entire world belongs to God. Nothing's ours. I, we acquired it, we purchased it, we worked hard for it, we created it, we built it, we wove it. We think it's ours, but that's a misnomer, it's a mistake. 
This entire world belongs to God. The physical material world is an illusion. God is the only reality. The world and everything in it belongs to the Ribbona Shalom. So when I want to make personal use of it, how do I redeem it? If I want to wear this clothing for enjoyment, I want to eat this food for enjoyment, I want my car, I want my house, I want to interact with my loved ones, how can I redeem it? What can I transfer? How can I trade it? Upon reflecting on this paradox, David HaMelech in a moment of resignation proclaimed, a in Tehillim Memtes, a man cannot redeem himself, he cannot give to Hashem his redemption payment. Yet many Jews have a tradition of reciting Kaparas and Erev Kippur. We quote a different Pasuk, in which Hashem says, redeem him from descending to the pit. I have found ransom, a Pasuk in Eov. Indeed, when Hashem's attribute of judgment is evident, David HaMelech's verse is operative. When his attribute of mercy prevails, the Pasuk from Eov pertains. Redemption is indeed possible. How? One of three ways. This is the Rav's insight. Kofer show That when one contributes to the census, one is achieving a redemption. How can we release anything we have that really belongs to God so that we can benefit from it ourselves? Hashem, the infinite Ein Sof, contracted himself to allow the existence of the world, to make it possible for a finite world to coexist with the infinite. The halach, the bidrach of man must also engage in simtsum. It's a Kabbalistic notion that a Kirsh Baruch fills the entire world. He is the entire world. So how do we have a physical limited universe, planet Earth, a ship, a human being? Because Hashem is mitzamtim himself, he constricts himself, he withdraws in order to make room for others. And we too, in Matati Odeh, we too, the Allah to we follow Hashem, man harbors illusions of greatness, thinking our abilities are limitless and we can attain infinity. The first redemption coin that God extracts, exacts from us is our own contraction. Just as Hashem engages in symptoms, so must we. We express symptom first and foremost by observing the precepts of halacha. Fealty to Jewish law is unenforceable. There's no police, no executive branch of government, no jails, no punishment. By following halacha, despite the lack of an external enforcement mechanism, we engage in symptom. Really, I want to do whatever I want, wherever I want, however I want. I want to eat everything. And I want to go to the beach on Saturday. And I want to be able to cut corners in business. And I want to be able to share juicy, delicious gossip. I want to do whatever I want to do, yet I feel bound by a system of rules. By halacha, I mitzamtzim, I withdraw, I constrict, I have discipline over myself, that's how I redeem myself. The next attribute of Hashem that we have to imitate, the second redemption coin to redeem our world, is known as hester, or ne'elam, obscurity. The Rebbe not only contracts himself, he obscures himself. He's a kel mistater, he's a hidden God. Kodesh Baruch Hu doesn't need or want the limelight, he doesn't want to go viral, he doesn't want to make the headlines, he doesn't need the likes or follows. He does not act demonstrably, nor does he seek recognition. We, human beings, that I've pointed out, have an inclination. We strive for recognition, for honor. We want our efforts and actions to be appreciated by as many as possible. Right? Especially we see this in our generation, maybe more than any, where through social media and through media in general, we measure a person's worth. How many friends, how many followers, how many likes, how many posts, how many reposts, how many comments, how viral a person went. That's their value. Ooh, did you see how many hits? Did you see how many follows for Narishkite? You remember that woman who was in a bathtub with cereal who interviewed President Obama? Likes and followed, interviewing people from a bathtub filled with cereal. Narishkite, ridiculousness, stupidity. That's value. Kodesh Baruch Hu Zakel Mistater. He actually contributes to the world in a meaningful way without needing the limelight, the spotlight, without needing to make the headlines or go viral. And that's the second way we imitate him and redeem ourselves when we act like him by being satisfied, being behind the scenes, living life with modesty and humility, trying to make meaningful contributions but without the need for recognition or for headlines. 
the Rav here goes on and on, but I want to get through more of the Parsha. He says, finally, the third redemption coin a person must pay in order to make use of this world is Elaine, voiceless, mute, passive acceptance. Although Hashem occasionally reveals himself in a dramatic fashion, more often he's mute and passive. This tendency towards silence is also reflected in his attributes of slowness to anger. Erech We'll get to later in the Parsha. Despite the actions of man that should provoke an angry response, Hashem is long-suffering with silent acceptance. A Jew regularly recites a bracha upon eating and satisfying his hunger. All is well. He's healthy in possession of his faculties. One can readily sense the presence of Hashem. In cruel contrast, upon the tragic death of a mother, father, son, daughter, spouse, when a person tears their clothing at the moment of grief, we say, Dayan HaEmes. person prepares the body for burial, places it in the ground, shovels earth on top of the casket. As everything that means anything to him lies lifeless before him in the grave, he recites the bracha. Where is the Atah? Where is Hashem's presence? At the moment that he's being tormented, he responds with Kaddish. The world is Hashem's and everything that takes place in it is a reflection of His will. Unanswerable, unexplained tragedies have accompanied the Jew in his long history. When faced with death, when a Jew is confronted with the ultimate teku, he recites the bracha of Dayana and Mes. Emotional sublimation is the greatest act of redemption. A Jew can pay the Holy One. So just as you have to pay a redemption to redeem something of Hakdash, to make it, Unconsecrated to be able to make personal use, we have to pay the Ribona Shalom in order to access his world. It's pay-per-view, pay-for-use. We have to pay to be able to use it. What's the form of payment that we offer the Ribona Shalom? How can we redeem our nefesh? How can we redeem ourselves? We too belong to Hashem. How can we redeem ourselves to enjoy and to benefit the pleasure of this world through these three, through these three different ways? Tzimtzum, contracting ourselves. Modesty and humility, and Dayan HaMS, recognizing Lashem HaRatzum Even when we don't fully understand or appreciate the whole world, everything belongs to Hashem. It's a funny census, we've shared this every year. Certain different Torah and the Pasha you have to repeat every year because they're, they're core to the theme of what the Pasha is trying to tell us. And I always tell you, I don't feel bad because the Pasha also repeats itself every year. Kirsch Baruch Hu has us read the same, single, same words every single year. Clearly the mes- message is supposed to resonate. So why do we take the census with a half shekel? It's a very inefficient way of counting. It'd be much more efficient if everyone gave a shekel. And whatever number you're left with is the number of people there are. Why is everyone giving a half shekel? And the answer is obvious. Because it's a reminder that we are our own are each a half. Lest we think that we've arrived, we're whole, we're complete. We are done. We make an entire unit of a contribution to this world. We only give a half to recognize that we are incomplete without one another. Only by complementing and supplementing one another, only by being together. Ki amech kulam tzadikim. When are we tzadikim? When we have an attitude of ki amech. The word amech, am. The word am means im. When are you a nation? When are we an am? When we're im. When we're with one another. When we're individuals. When we're distinct. When we think that we can live on an island on our own. We're by ourselves. We've arrived. We're happy. We're complacent. We're good. Then we're in trouble. When are we tzaddikim? When kiamech, when we are im one another. So everyone gives a half shekel to realize on our own we're incomplete. On our own we're a fragment. On our own we are half. In order to become whole we have to combine with others. And of course, spoke about last week or two weeks ago with Truma. This is the famous Vinos Nu, the uh, Vilna Gones, what's it called? You read it, palindrome. When you read it forward and backwards the same way, because when you give, you really receive more. Remember two weeks ago we spoke about the Malbim's question. What do you mean love maso kol? You can't take everything. And there is something you can take? And the answer is yes. Paradoxically, the only thing that you can take is what you've given. 
what you held on to, it stays behind. You can't take it with you. But what you gave away, that is what you take with you to the next world. Paradoxically. So everyone who's holding on for dear life, dear life, I know exceedingly wealthy, wealthy people who have money not only for their life, but for generations to come. If they tried, they couldn't spend everything they have. And yet, you ask them to contribute to a meaningful cause, to ease the pain of others, to promote and spread Torah. They hold on so tight. They're so nervous. They want to take it all with them. They want to be on that list of the Forbes 400, climbing higher and higher. They want to leave more and more of a legacy. And they don't realize the more they hold on to, the less they take with them. And the more you give away, the more you have, and the more you take with you. Venus knew what you give is what you take. The Torah continues the next. Take with you. This is the incense, the aromatics. David Amalek requests. Says, my tefillah, let it be established like ketoros, like incense before you. Why is tefillah described like incense? Twice a day in the morning, the evening, they would burn incense on the inner mizbeach. It would ascend on high, be a pleasant fragrance, a pleasant, or a pleasant aroma. Kirsh Baruch needs perfume. It's a little cologne. Did the kohanim have body odor from all that work? What's pshat? Besamikdash, we're trying to mask it, smell like a locker room. Why, why do we need incense? Why are they burning incense? What's the purpose of the, of the incense? When I was finishing my smicha in Eretz Yisrael, in uh, YU's Kolal in Israel, there was another yeshiva that no longer exists, but it was housed in the same facility. And uh, my precious, very innocent wife, one of the first nights we were there, we opened the window to get some air. There was no air conditioning. Yushalayim, the summer is hot. And there was an aroma that wafted through our little apartment. And she said, wow, someone's burning incense. It's like the Ketoras. I said, that's not incense, honey. <laughs> not, that yeshiva's not here anymore. But they were mocked here. It wasn't Kataris that they were being mocked here, let's just say. So, Baruch Hashem. It was a very, a very holy, very high place. Everybody was mamish, getting high, close to Hashem. So why, so why do you need the Kataris and the Beis HaMikdash? What is David HaMelech likening? What's the parallel? What's he saying? May my prayers be established like incense before you. The analogy between tefillah and incense is the fact that there was an ingredient, ma'aleh ashan. One of the ingredients, the magnificent ingredients of this holy mixture, caused the smoke to rise directly up in a perfectly vertical direction. No wind could make it, we're swaying back and forth over here on this Heliga ship, but the wind, nothing, the waves, the wind, nothing could move the smoke. It went directly up. And that's the analogy. David HaMelech is saying, just like no outside influence, no element can manipulate or distort or corrupt or move my holy smoke, the smoke of the Beis HaMikdash, may my tefillah ascend directly up. Let it not be distracted. Let it not be manipulated. Let my tefillah not run into a roadblock. Let it not, you know, uh, the connection be weak. Let it be a direct connection with the tefillah ascend directly, directly on high. Why is a Kaddish Baruch Hu love? What is the benefit of this incense? First of all, you'll notice in this Pasuk, Anyone recognize the words Mar Daror? That was the name of Mordechai. The Gemara Megillah says, Mordechai Menatora Minayin, Mar Daror. This ingredient as part of the incense, Mar Daror. Pure mar, 500 shekels of weight, fragment, kinamah, cinnamon, besamachatziso, and so on and so forth. How is this a hint to Mordechai? 
We spoke about, I think, last year or the year before, not now. But why does the Kaddish Baruch Hu want this? Why does the Kaddish Baruch Hu crave this? What is it all about? So it's very interesting. How do we describe, how do we describe Hashem getting angry in the Torah? It's an anthropomorphism. Of course, Hashem doesn't have physical attributes. He doesn't have a human anatomy. But the way we relate to Him, the way we identify with Him is by a physical parallel, a physical analogy. So how do we describe Hashem getting angry? He is Charon Af. What's Af? In the nostrils, in the nose, that's where he gets angry. And later, after the Chet when Moshe appeases, appeals to Hashem, tries to appease Hashem, and Hashem says, here's a formula. This is the magic formula. Use this formula. I can't help but forgive you. So Moshe uses the formula, 13 attributes of divine mercy. And what is the way that we ask Hashem to forgive us? How do we appeal to His forgiveness? Erech apayim. So he gets angry where? In the nose. And when he's calm, and when he forgives, where does that happen? In his nose. What's the obsession with Hashem's nose, his nostrils? Charonaf, the nostrils flare, he gets angry. Erech apayim, slow to anger, the nostrils constrict, the nostrils, then he's calm. What's with the nostrils? And what's with the incense? What's going on over here? So perhaps the answer is, why are we reminding the Kaddish Baruch Hu about apayim? Because we're reminding the Kaddish Baruch Hu about the very, very beginning. When He created, when He fashioned us, when He breathed His life into us, when He made us living, animated beings that contain a tzelem elokim, when He put a piece of Himself in us. In Kabbalah they describe that you can, you know, you give someone a kiss, it's very holy, it's very connected, but it's very superficial, it's just the lips. You can blow into something, but you're just using your mouth, your larynx, your voice box, you're not going deep. But to really blow something up, the Kabbalah uses the language like a glass blower who's trying to blow up, expand the glass. Or we use the analogy, because we don't blow glass, of a balloon. If you've had to blow up a balloon for your grandchildren's birthday party, you could mamash need a nap afterwards. You could be out of breath. Two balloons, and you're exhausted. You can't breathe. You're catching your breath. Where does the breath to blow up a balloon come from? Deep inside yourself, you take a deep breath, bring it up from your diaphragm, from your kishkas, from deep inside you, and then you blow it. Only then can you really make it expand, can you blow it up. And you hope you get to tie a knot around it before the thing goes all over the place. <laughs> but you got to start again. What did you put inside that balloon? You put the air that's deep inside yourself. Noribona Shalom, when he breathed his life, what does the Pasuk say? How did God start our life? Where did HaKadosh Baruch Hu put a piece of himself? Through what opening? Through what conduit? How did he blow us up, so to say? How did he make us living, animated, vibrant beings? Godly beings. Tzelem elokim. Vayipach be'apav. So we're reminded of Kodesh Baruch Hu, we have an neshama inside us. True, like we spoke about last night in Siddur Snippets, the introduction to Karbanos. True, we have an animal instinct and animal impulse. True, there's the animal part of who we are. But Ribono Shulolim. Don't forget Chaviv Adam Shnever B'Tzelem. Don't forget you love us, Shinibra B'Tselem, because you made us B'Tselem. We are in your image. There's a piece of you in us. And how did that piece of you get in us? Don't forget. Be'apav, through the nose. So when you're losing patience, when you're getting angry, when you've given us, when we're incorrigible and you want to reject us and give up on us, where does he get angry? Be'apav, where he placed life, the neshama, in us. And when we appeal to him and appease him, and we get him to forgive us, where do we achieve that? Biapav. So how do we remind him of our neshama? 
What is the place to remind someone about the pleasantness of through the nose? Pleasant fragrance. That's the role of the of the ketores. That's the role of the incense. Is to remind the Kodesh Baruch Hu, I have an neshama in me. It's not a coincidence on Motzei Shabbos Kodesh when we make Havdalah and we're saying goodbye to something that we had on Shabbos. What did we have on Shabbos? A neshama Yisera. You know the thing that people convinced you you can't gain weight because you have a neshama Yisera? Okay. Arbe, many tried and it didn't work. But anyway, we have a neshama Yisera bless you on Shabbos. The neshama Yisera, we'll get to if we ever get to it. The neshama Yisera, those not going on the excursion can stay. We could do the parasha the whole day. Those going are excused. So, the Neshama Yisera that we get on Shabbos is not physical. It is a mindfulness, a presence, a peace, a serenity, a menuchas nefesh. That is, our, our soul has expanded. Our soul is more authentic and real. Our soul is in touch with itself because we're disconnected from the narishkeit, the chaos, the to-do list, the troubles, the anxiety of the world. We achieve a serenity, a peacefulness, a Neshama Yisera. Havdalah comes, and before you make Havdalah, your entire family is looking at their phones, and your phone is blowing up, and you had seven events to go to on Motzei Shabbos, and Sunday it all starts again, 14 Mishalachim are knocking on the door, and life has begun. You've got work, and you've got debt, and you've got responsibility, and you've got, you got doctor's appointments, and you've got lab results you're waiting for, and it's all they're waiting for you after Havdalah. There goes the Neshama Yisera. Zaygazim, goodbye. How did the Neshama Yisera leave you? Where did it go out of? Well, if the neshama first came into you through the nose, then the neshama yisera, the more authentic feeling of the neshama yisera, leaves where? Through the nose. So how do we comfort ourselves? Besamim. We make a bracha, bori minei besamim. In order to comfort ourselves from the neshama yisera. If you didn't make avdala on Motzei Shabbos, and you only made avdala on Sunday and Monday, until Tuesday, do you make a besamim? No, it's only on Motzei Shabbos when you said goodbye to the neshama yisera that you make that bracha. A Motzei Yantif, you didn't get an Hashem Yisera on Yantif, you don't make the bracha. Why don't you have an Hashem Yisera on Yantif? You can cook on Yantif, so you still have to prepare and cook and serve, and there's an element of work. You don't have that level of serenity. You don't have. What if Shabbos goes into Yantif? Do you make... Do you make a Bari Bnei Bissam? Do you, do you have an Hashem Yisera if Shabbos goes into Yantif? It's Machlok, as Tesis and Arve Pesachim has a discussion about it. So that's the notion of the Ketoros, this proper incense, the Mar Jaror, Mordechai, when we're reminding HaKadosh Baruch Hu, just when you're ready to give up on us, just when you think that we forfeited our Neshama, we remind you we have a Neshama. And how do we remind you? We affirm our Neshama inside ourselves. How? By producing Mar Jaror, by producing magnificent incense, a pleasant aroma and fragrance for the Ribbonu Shalom. The Gemara says, Rabbi Nassan Omer, Kishu Sochek Omer Hadek Haitev Haitev Hadek, when the Kohanim would prepare the Bissamim, when they were crushing the ingredients for the Bissamim, Rab Nasan teaches, the Gimbar says, that they would say to him, Good job, Chazaku Baruch Yashikayach. Do it, grind it in a fine way. Fine, grind it very fine. Hakol Yafal Bissamim. Gimbar concludes, why? Because the voice, the coal, is good for the Bissamim. How is the coal good for Bissamim? That's like, you, you know, my grandmother used to talk to her sponge cake when she made it. The coal is yaffa, the, the sponge cake. The voice is good for besamim. The fact that somebody is telling you, grind it fine, finely grind it, that makes it better. I call yaffa the besamim. What does the voice have to do with besamim? So what's the answer? It's what we spoke about last Shabbos. I'm not going to say the whole drush again. 
But we spoke about last Shabbos. You know what it means? It means when the Kohen is painstakingly doing his work, he's grinding that ketoras, and it gets old, and it gets stale, and it gets boring, and it gets difficult, and his hands are aching. But someone is there giving him encouragement, a positive word. Good job. Well done. Hakol Yafa Lebesame means that when there are words of encouragement, when there's a compliment, when there's positivity, it's good for the product, the outcome, for whatever we're doing. The power of a compliment, the power of a positive word. We spoke about last Shabbos with the bells on the bottom of the Kohen Gadol's clothing, 72 bells which atoned for the Lashnara. The antidote for negative speech is not no speech, it's not silence. The antidote is positive speech for compliments to ring like bells, to offer positive words that reverberate, that ring what they can bring out. We said over the Chassam Sofer's Pshat, Kosh Baruch who tells Moshe, find Chachmei Lei, find those people who are wise of heart and tell them, you're great, you have potential and then they'll produce the Big Day Kahuna. When people are complimented, when they're given a positive message, then they produce great things, they produce greatness. And that's part of the message here of the preparation, the way that the Ketoros was prepared as well. Okay, let's keep going. Then we have the Kior, where the Kohanim would wash. We'll get to this in Siddur snippets in the next couple nights, maybe tonight, about uh, the, the Kior, the, the basin where they washed what was made from the mirrors the women used to beautify themselves in Egypt when the men typically had given up and the women with their optimism and faith said, no, it's worth bringing more into this world. It's worth bringing more into this world. I always mention how there was a... In Egypt, we can understand men. They looked at the world of cruelty, of harshness, of persecution, of oppression, and they said, I'm going to bring children into this world to be tortured, to be the targets of anti-Semitism and extermination. For what? Forget it. They withdrew from their wives, and the women said, don't you understand there's a rebonish there's a master plan? Have faith. There's a brighter future. It's worth yet bringing children into this world. The greatest Jewish population growth, certainly of modern times, took place, anyone know where? In the DP camps and following. Survivors who should have given up, who should have said, what well, we went through, we're done. Whatever is left of the Jewish people, we'll live it out, we'll ride it out. Last one, turn the lights off, we're done. Instead, what a commitment. What a commitment. We had dinner last night with someone who said, the last time they were on a ship, 1951, they were born in a DP camp to their survivor parents, came over as a baby, is the last time they were on a boat, until, until now. This is the commitment of our, our incredible uh, survivor parents and grandparents, the cure, the mirrors, that faith, that the world is a brighter future. By the way, the women in Mitzrayim were right, and the survivors of the Holocaust were right. Did they ever know that a few years later there would be the declaration of a state of Israel and a flourishing orthodoxy in America and other parts of the world, more yeshivas and kol and mikvah, everything that's going on, their faith and optimism was rewarded, and that's what the Kohanim look at. When they wake up in the morning and they wash their hands and they begin their day and they begin their service in the Beis HaMikdash, the first message they see are the mirrors in the bottom of the basin, and they remember that no matter what's going on outside those walls of that Beis HaMikdash, no matter how dire no matter how, how, how uh, ominous, but to have the faith and the optimism that the carbonos have to be brought with that positivity, with that faith, and with that optimism, the Parsha of the Kiyor. Next. Oh, Re'i Karasi B'Shem B'Tzal Ben Uri Ben Chur L'Matei Yehuda, Kosh Baruch Hazza Amaleo, so Ruach Elokim, V'chachma U'Vesvuna U'Vedas U'Vechom Malacha. Anyone know what that stands for? Chachma, Bina, and Das. Chabad. 
It stands for Chabad. Is there a Chabad in the Bahamas? Yes. Mastamana. Of course there is. Of course. Of course there is. Chabad of the Bahamas. Baruch Hashem. Of course. Chachma Bina and Da'as. We're not going to go into this now. I think we spoke about it last year, two years ago. You can listen on, uh, online. But what is the difference between Chachma, Bina, and Das? These are three descriptions of knowledge, of intellect, of analysis, of cognition. What's the difference between them? And what was the core of the philosophy of the Alter Rebbe, of, of uh, Rav Zaman of Liadi? What was he saying? Chachma, Bina, and Das, Chabad. People identify or associate mistakenly. They think Chabad's about Fabrengans and Lachayims. It is about that also. But at its core, Tanya is all about Limar HaTorah, the supremacy of Limar HaTorah, the centrality of Limar HaTorah. Chachma, Bina, and Das is not about a Lachayim. Chachma, Bina, Das is not about Kigel. It's not about a Fabrengen. Chachma, Bina, and Das is not about Mishloch Monos or Honey Cake. Chachma, Bina, and Das is the centrality of Torah and the different approaches, the intellectual approaches to Torah. What are the differences between them? Why does HaKadosh Baruch Hu identifies? Why should B'Tzala be the architect and designer of the Beis HaMikdash of the Mishkan? Because he's filled him with Ruach Elokim. And what does it mean to have Ruach Elokim? It means to be a Chabadnikar, to have Chachma, Bina, and Das. What is the difference between them? Again, you can listen online. Next. Next, we're interrupted by Shabbos. The gift of, the presence of, the significance of Shabbos. Why is Shabbos brought here? To contrast the building of the Mishkan, at least Chazal seemed to say, Shmir Shabbos is in the middle of Melech's Mishkan to teach that you're not allowed to build the Mishkan on Shabbos. No matter how lofty, how noble the building of the Mishkan, no matter how significant the building of the Mishkan, it does not supersede the laws of Shabbos. The laws of Shabbos come first. But there's so much more, and it's so much deeper. Shabsosai is in the plural. Why is Shabsosai in the plural? It should say, what should the Pasuk say? Ach es, Shabbasi, Hashabbos, Tishmoru. You should observe. Shabsosai. Why is Shabsosai in the plural here? Any suggestions? What? Okay, good. Because the Gemara says, if only if only the Jewish people kept two Shabbos in a row, miyad immediately we would be redeemed. They say, the Hasidic farm say, which two Shabbos? Which two Shabbos? Shabbos Chazon and Shabbos Nachamu. If we keep those two Shabbos, if we would understand and tap into the energy of Shabbos Chazon, and feel the absence of Hashem in the morning, and then we'd feel Shabbos Nachamu, if we'd only keep those two Shabbos correctly, miyad nigalim, then we'd be redeemed. But two Shabbos is just one Shabbos. I don't know, just one It should be just two Shabbos and we'll all be free. Why was it just one Shabbos? Maybe it's a different girsa. So Shabbos Sosai in the plural. The Ksava Kabbalah, Rav Yaakov C. Mecklenburg, has a different explanation. He says something phenomenal. He writes, First he quotes the Ramban, who says, because we don't just get to keep one Shabbos. There's no Shabbos on, Shabbos off, Shabbos on, Shabbos off. Shabbos comes every week. And we're bound by it. We have to observe it. It's a non-negotiable. Shabbos in the plural. For Shabbos, the rest of our life, it's a non-negotiable. As I like the Ramban, that's the Ramban. But the Ksavah Kabbalah says, Within every 25-hour period of Shabbos, there's really two Shabboses. 
אם כן יש בכל שבת ושבת שתי שוויסוס. שוויסוס הגוף מעסקי עולם, ושוויסוס וישב הנפש, לסעסק בעניינים רוחניים אלוקיים. There's the Shabbos of the body and the Shabbos of the soul. On the one hand, every Shabbos comes, no work, 39 acts of creative labor, no going to work, no obligation, no responsibility, no to-do lists. On the one hand, there's the Shabbos of the body, we refrain, we abstain, we rejuvenate, we renew, we rest, we shluf, we eat, we drink fine wine, we make a l'chaim. There's the Shabbos of the body, we abstain. But there's also the Shabbos of the neshama. It's not just what we abstain from, it's what do we fill that void with? Zmiros and Divrei Torah and board games with our family and laughter and fun and time together, disconnecting from technology in order to connect to the people and the things around us that matter most. There are two components, Shabbos Sa'i Tishmoru. There's not just one Shabbos. Implicit within every Shabbos is the observance of two Shabboses. We're good at one of the Shabboses. We take off We're strict. We have shiurim, lamitas, malachas. We know the details and the chumras and the borer. Which jelly bean to take from what jelly bean and how do I make the tea and the koshlichi and how do I eat the food. And the, we're good at the malachas. We know how to do the details, the minutia, the laws that we excel at. But have we given the spirit of Shabbos, the flavor of Shabbos, the scent of Shabbos, the feeling of Shabbos, that other Shabbos of Shabbos society, that's the critical part of Shabbos that we need. We say, What do you mean? This is a sign, a symbol between me and them. For generations. We say again, So the Svar Makedoshim say, First you have to be Shomer Shabbos. And how are you Shomer Shabbos? The Lama Tess Malachos. Don't, don't, don't. Don't, don't, don't. Can't, can't, can't. Shomer Shabbos, the things you can't do. But you want Shabbos to be the Doro Sam. You want your children and your grandchildren to know the Gishmak of Shabbos. Then the Shabbos can't be defined only by the Shomer B'nai Yisrael. Don't, 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 can't, can't, can't. It has to be La'asosas Shabbos. You have to make Shabbos. Shabbos just can't be what you can't do. La'asos, you want the children to look forward. Shabbos should be totally different. You come to Shabbos, my parents, I have their attention, I have their time, I have their concentration. We sing, no one has anywhere to go, we enjoy, we play, we laugh, we read. La Sosas a Shabbos, Zmiris, the feeling of Shabbos. La Sosas a Shabbos. Shabbos is not just passive. It's not that the sun sets Friday, I refrain, I abstain, I stop doing those creative labors, and that's my Shabbos. If that's my Shabbos, it won't last the Doro Sum. The next generations will not want it. In order for it to be lo doro sum, it can't just be v'sham ruven Yisrael as a Shabbos, it has to be la'asos as a Shabbos. Then, b'ni uven b'ni Yisrael, osi li olam. What does it mean, osi? The Chizkuni writes, Chizkuni writes, k'shetish b'zu k'omoni, yedu kol v'lo b'ni v'le b'n ha'umos, ha'ol k'yatem imi. Chizkuni writes, it's not between me and the other nations. When the rest of the world sees there's still something called a Jew who keeps Shabbos, it's an os. then the world will see the special relationship that Kla Yisrael has with Hashem. We are the last vestiges on earth. They will study us in a short time from now. Who for 24 hours can withdraw from technology? Does there exist such a, such a person on the planet who can disconnect, who can shut down, who could not manipulate and not engage in technology for that period of time? It's an os, the world will see that the special relationship between God and the Jewish people that we continue to observe in this way. We continue to observe in this way.
And Shabbos is not just something that we wait for on Friday. If you wait for it by the time Friday comes, it's too late. You've got to look forward to it the whole week. The Ramban, B'Shamru means Yom Rishon B'Shabbos, Shendi B'Shabbos, Shlishi B'Shabbos. Our entire week is oriented around Shabbos. Our entire week. It's one day since Shabbos, it's one day to the next Shabbos. Our entire week is oriented around Shabbos. We look forward to it. We count from it. We count down towards it. I can make Havdalah till Tuesday. And already beginning Wednesday, what is it? What do I say at the end of the Shir Shalyom Wednesday morning? I begin Kabbalah Shabbos. When does Kabbalah Shabbos begin? People want to know. I have to come home from work within the 18 minutes. When is the last second? What time is Kabbalah Shabbos? You know what the answer is? What time is Kabbalah Shabbos? Wednesday morning. Am I late? Did I miss Kabbalah Shabbos? Yeah, it starts Wednesday morning. That's when Kabbalah Shabbos starts. You're shopping for Shabbos. You're cooking for Shabbos. The dry cleaning for Shabbos. The haircut for Shabbos. Setting the table for Shabbos. The Shomer B'nai Yisrael Shabbos. I'm not going to get into this now. We've spoken about it countless times. Rabbi Salavechik, Yaakov Kamenetsky, others pointed out that in America we have Shabbos, but we've lost the notion of Erev Shabbos. Everyone's using up every one of their 18 minutes and rushing in. Where's the Erev Shabbos? If you set the table Thursday night, you wake up Friday morning to an Erev Shabbos. The whole feeling, the whole atmosphere, the whole, the whole Friday is different. It's not Friday. It's Erev Shabbos, and there's an enormous and fundamental difference between the two. Shabbos doesn't just happen passively. La Sos is a Shabbos if we want it to be the Dorosam. And there's a lot more to say, but we don't have the time. Next. Torah reminds us that Moshe gave at Harsinai the Luchos. First of all, the Luchos are called the Luchos Ha'edus. They are the tablets of testimony. They testify to the special relationship of the Jewish people and Hashem. Why is this Pasuk given right here as an introduction to the new story of the Chaita Ego? Why here? Why now? Why now? So first of all, we set the stage. What function, what role do the Luchos Ha'edus have? The Luchos Ha'edus are the wedding ring. Chassan puts a ring on a Kala's finger under the chuppah. And it's an edus. It's a testament to a commitment, to a loyalty, to a fidelity. So the Torah is reminding us before the story of the Chaita Egel, it's setting up that relationship of marriage, of intimacy, of affection, of commitment that was supposed to be of loyalty right before it tells us now, describes just how egregious, just how broken, just how terrible what we did is. But the Salaam Rebbe understands it differently. He says, this Pasuk is here to teach us that Akash Baruch gives the Rafua before the Makkah. Kaddish Baruch Hu always provides the antidote, the medicine, the response, the repair before he gives us the challenge. So you saw it, it's a principle that we have, a tradition we have. The Rafuah comes before the Makkah. The Makkah was this terrible, terrible event of infidelity. And what's the Rafuah? What's the response? What's the repair? What's the road back? The Luchos Ha'edus, Torah. Torah is the compass. Torah calibrates our lives. Torah is the way that we come back. And we then have the story of the Chet Egel. Moshe goes up 40 days, 40 nights. They miscalculate. They think he hasn't come down in time. And they panic. And they build an Egel. And Aaron seems to cooperate with the Egel. And the Rav has very interesting here. We don't have time. I think the phrase I say more than any other in the Parshish here. We don't have time. Aaron. Aaron seems to cooperate. Why is Aaron accountable? He seems to be the quarterback of the Egel. And the people are punished terribly. And Aaron seems to get away. What's the difference between the roles of Moshe and Aaron? Moshe and Aaron are like a mother and father. Mother and father I use generically. Sometimes it's the reverse. Depends on the family. But you have the strict parent and the lenient parent. The one who wants to be the din. The one who's rachamim. The one who, when they say something, you better not challenge them. They mean it. And the other that you can win them over to your side. So, Mr. describes 
There's the king teacher represented by Moshe Midas Adin, criticizing, exhorting, holding people accountable. The Amharas, the ignoramus, the lax are censured. MS, truth demands unbending justice. Moshe's the Ishemes. And then you have not the king teacher, but the, the, the saint teacher, Aaron, who's guided not by Din, but by Chesed, limitless compassion, overflowing kindness. The essence of Chesed expresses itself in the universality, in its ultimate love. No one is excluded. The Ish Chesed, as opposed to the Ish Emes. These two archetypes, these two personalities, the contrast between them can be seen within the story of the of the Chayta Ega. What happened with the Jewish people? Where did they go wrong? So again, we've said countless times, to me, it's the only explanation I find that's most meaningful of the Kuzari of Yudah Levi. Chayta Ega is not the story of infidelity. Could you imagine the Jewish people on their wedding night they excuse themselves from the honeymoon suite to go get ice from the ice machine. And in the end, they slip into another room. They have an affair against the Ribbona Shalom. They worship a Chayta Egel as they walk away from Har Sinai. It's unimaginable after the greatest revelation of all time, hearing the voice of Hashem himself, that they could do that. It's impossible. So what happened? And what does it mean? Says the Kuzari, what it means is the people... We live in the physical material world and we crave a physical material way to relate to Hashem. And they had that through Moshe as the intermediary, the conduit. And when Moshe didn't come back, they panicked. How can we connect to an invisible God? We can't hear, see, feel, touch, smell Him. How will we connect with Him? We've lost our physical intermediary. Moshe didn't come back. So they panic and they do what? They build an eagle. And says the Kuzari, the building of the eagle is not an act of disloyalty to Hashem. It's an attempt to worship Hashem, just a misguided one. You're not allowed to invent your own way. You can't create your own conduit. But Kersh Baruch says, I recognize the legitimacy of that need. So what does he give us instead? If you assume in Muktam Mukhar Batorah, really the Mishkan was given as the response to the Chayta Egel, Hashem gave us the Mishkan as a response. He said, I understand you have a physical need, but you can't make it up on your own. You have to listen to me. The Beis Halevi writes, the Beis HaLevi writes, that's why Vayaka Pekude repeat Shuma Tetzave all over again with one big difference. Kashot Elokim. Vayaka Pekude over and over and over and over and over again, it says, as God commanded them. It doesn't say that in Shuma Tetzave. Why? It says the Beis HaLevi to teach us that Hashem gave us the Mishkan and He said, you can have the most noble, you can have the most virtuous goal of serving Hashem, but you can't make up your own new rituals. This is a problem in our generation. Everyone wants to use religious creativity. They institute new titles and new statuses and new minyanim and new services and new religious rituals and protocols and ceremonies, whatever feels good, whatever makes sense. And they say, how dare you challenge my intent? I have the purest intent. I'm doing it L'Shem Shemayim. And the Beis HaLevi says you can do something L'Shem Shemayim, you can have the purest intent. But if it's not commanded by God, if it doesn't conform with His will, then it's inauthentic, it's counterfeit. And that's why Vayaka Pekude repeats Shuma Tetzava to tell us the Chayta Egel, at least according to the Kuzari, was not an act of infidelity, but it was misguided in that we're not allowed to make up our own religion. We have to follow the will of Hashem, either communicated directly by Him or communicated through His emissaries and ambassadors, our Chazal, who are His, who are His mouthpiece. What happens? I gave a shir on Sunday, the Slonim, I'm not going to repeat the whole thing, mostly because we're out of time. But the Slonimer points out, Moshe does not break the Luchos when he first hears about the Chayta Egel. When does he drop and break the Luchos? When he comes down and he sees them singing and dancing. Slonimer has, you should listen to the Shir or read the piece in the Siva Shalom. Because the Slonimer has an incredibly important insight. He says, we're only human. And we're destined to make mistakes. And making those mistakes is excusable, it's forgivable, because we have a Yetzirah. God created us with a drive 
He created us with temptation, with instinct. He created us with an appetite. God gave us that Yetzirah, it's understandable. He uses the language, we're even to a degree on us. We are excused, we are exempt because of the Yetzirah that tempts us. That is forgivable. You know what's not forgivable? When after we make such an egregious mistake, we feel no shame. We have no guilt. We have pride, we have nostalgia. It says that they danced in Cholos, they were in circles. They had a fabreng and they made a tish, they sang and they danced to celebrate the eagle. Moshe didn't break the luchos when he heard they made a mistake. Because people are human, we make mistakes. He broke the luchos when he saw they had no shame. They had no regret, they had no guilt, they had no remorse. They celebrated their mistake. And only after he breaks the luchos does he realize, whoa, Moshe just handed the wedding ring back. Spouse knows that you mean business, that you're really upset about something when you say, here's the ring, I'm done, I'm out. And that's what Moshe did and it drew their attention. And now what does the Pasuk describe? The Pasuk says, They heard and Vayisablu means, Avelis, they, they mourned. That's the emotion that Moshe was looking for. They mourned, they grieved, they felt guilt, they felt shame. We make mistakes, that's okay. But do we learn from them? Do we grow from them? Do we repair from them? Or do we celebrate them? Do we marinate in them? Do we enjoy them? Vayisablu, Rabbi Salavitchik says, why Vayisablu? What a strange term. It's not the first time that sin is referred to in terms of mourning. We saw the same phenomenon, or we'll see the same phenomenon with the Maraglan. It says, Moshe related all the words, and the people mourned greatly. Vayisablu. Why does mourning follow mistakes? Why that language of mourning? You mourn when you experience loss. So Rabbi describes so beautifully that according to Allah, the laws of mourning apply when a person loses something important and precious. The loss of money or property is not a real loss. You don't mourn. There's no tech, you don't sit shiva. There's no technical Allahic rules of mourning because you lost your car or your stocks went down. As sad as that is. Mourning is a reaction to a loss that expresses itself in a strong sensation of nostalgia, of yearning, of retrospective memories. The power of mourning, its cruelty and its loneliness has its local point in the memory of the human being. Were man able to forget to eradicate events from his memory, there'd be no need for mourning. The feelings of bereavement are dependent on memory, which is the greatest blessing of man. Memory constitutes the entire awareness of the human eye. In times of mourning, this blessing becomes a curse. Memories float up from the past, and when the past comes to the surface, a man is forced to compare yesterday with today, he's engulfed by a feeling of bereavement and mourning. Over the course of many years, a man becomes accustomed to returning home from the outside affairs, so on and so forth. The sinner also mourns. What does he mourn? He mourns that which he has irretrievably lost. What has he lost? Everything. His purity, his holiness, his integrity, his spiritual wealth, the joy of life, the spirit of sanctity in man, all that gives meaning to life and all content to human existence. The mourner mourns the soul of the beloved one he has lost and the sinner his own soul, which he has lost. Mourning inevitably contains a masochistic element. The mourner tortures and torments himself. He hates himself. And in the bereavement of sin, there's also a clear masochistic element. Begin to feel a sense of contempt and disgust towards himself. He goes on and on. It's healthy. When you make a mistake, recognize it and regret it and feel guilty and feel ashamed of it. Those are healthy attributes. That's how you avoid repeating them again in the future. When you feel no shame, when you feel pride and joy, when you celebrate and you sing and you dance, that's when you're not only in trouble, that's when you're likely to do it again and again and again. And that's why the reaction is in the context we're really out of time. Right, one more minute. Two more minutes. Ten more minutes. 
One more minute. In the context of the Chet Egel, Moshe says to Hashem, "Show me your face." Let me understand your ways. Let me understand your glory. This is the ancient old question of why do bad things happen to good people? People that we love, people who are special, they suffer. They endure terrible things. Why do bad things happen to good people? And what's Hashem's answer to Moshe? That nobody can see me and live. So you know what? You can't see me. Sorry, backwards. What does he say? Hiding in the cleft of the rock. I cover my face until you pass. You can see the back of my head, you can't see my face. We can understand events sometimes later. We put the pieces together and later in life we can understand why something happened the way it happened. As we're going through it, as we endure it, it doesn't make any sense. And sometimes only later in life can we make sense of it. It's like somebody is weaving a tapestry. And when you see the side with all the threads and the knots, it looks like just a bunch of hanging threads randomly. Only when you turn it around do you see the picture painted. The ink dots versus taking a step back and seeing the whole picture. Sometimes only Vraisa Esacharai after the fact, but Panay, you can't see it while we're living it. We can't see it in real times. And sometimes, you can't even see it. We go to our, our death and we don't even understand why things happen the way they did. But we do so with faith that everything Hashem does has a reason. And everything is for our good. And I'll never forget once a man who lost his wife very, very young, leaving him with very little children, spoke in our shul. He was the, a rabbi in Aish in England and he was in BRS for a Shabbos. And his thesis, which only he could say, I could never dare say, was that it's not bad things don't happen to good people. He said, painful things happen to good people, but not bad things. Good or bad is a judgment, and we can't give that judgment, only Hashem can. Whether in fact it's good or bad and why it happens, that's up to Hashem, not us. So the right expression and the answer to this question is not bad things happen to good people, it's painful things happen to good people. Why painful things happen to good people, we don't understand. And they are in fact incredibly painful. But it's painful things, not bad things. Good and bad is up to Hashem. If it were a world where only good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, do you think anyone would choose to be bad? I've always understood that the reason bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people is it keeps us honest. It keeps us having free will, doing, making the right choices, doing the right thing, not for the reward, but because it's the right thing to do. If bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, who would ever be bad? They wouldn't be good for being good. They'd be good because they didn't want bad things to happen. So in order to be good, because goodness is the right thing to do, sometimes good things happen to bad people. And bad things happen to good people to keep us all honest and ensuring that we're doing the right things for the right reasons. I'll tell you one last thing, even though there are a thousand more things to say. But I'll tell you one last thing. So Kodesh Baruch now says, if you want me to forgive you, here's the formula. And we say it. We say it for slichos, we say it for a whole month. It's almost time to start waking up already. Eat some kidneys and it's time for slichos. We say it only from the week from Motzei Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur. But over and over in Slichos, what do we say? Hashem, Hashem, Kevracham, Mechanon. This formula comes from our parsha. Even after, as egregious as what the Jewish people did, Hashem says, say this and you're forgiven. How does that work? How does that work? It's so bogus. Imagine my wife's upset at me. So what do I do? I say, did I tell you? You look so beautiful today. You look gorgeous. Did I tell you how important? My life only has meaning because you're in it. 
Oh, okay, fine. I forgive you. <laughs> Can't help be angry at you when you say that. Is that what's going on here? Hashem, 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 you look so pretty today. You're so patient. You're so slow to anger. You're so just. You're so fair. Did he tell you how great you are? And he says, oh, shucks, you know, I really wanted to be angry at you, but he said those nice things, I can't help but forgive you. Is that how shallow and superficial Hashem is? You think that works? That makes no sense. That's not a religion I want to be part of. That's not a God I admire. So how does this whole section work? Hashem, Hashem, Kerachim, Bechanan. So if you look at the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, which tells us about this whole formula and saying it, the Gemara doesn't say Imru Lefana. The Maharal points this out on that Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara doesn't say Imru Lefanai. It doesn't say, say this before me. It says, Ya'asu Lefanai. Imitate me. Be like me. Follow my footsteps. And I can't help but forgive you. If you're angry at someone and they say to you, look, I made a mistake, but I want to be more like you. Your values, your ideals, I'm going to embrace them. I want to imitate you. I want to follow in your footsteps. I'm embracing what you care about. That's when you can't help but forgive them. When you see them walk in your path, walk in your ways, follow in your footsteps, care about what you care about, that's when you forgive them. So it doesn't say, Imru Lefanai, it doesn't work as a formula. We repeat this, I say this every year, Yom Narayim time, because people make the mistake. In between Hashem Hashem Ke'arach V'chanan, they're talking in Shul, they're saying Lashon Hara. In between the Yud Gimomidos, saying the Slichas, they're at work cutting corners, they're forgetting to make a bracha. It doesn't work. It's not some magic hebejibi formula that you can just say and Hashem forgives. You can't kiss up to God. It's not imru lefanai. It's yasu lefanai. When we live, Hashem Hashem, kiaracham v'chanan, erachapayim, and so on. So it's worth studying what each of those is. What are these 13 midos? Tomer Dvora, the Sefer Tomer Dvora. The great Kabbalist, Tomer Dvora, an incredible Sefer, is all about explaining what each of these attributes are. Hashem Hashem, kiaracham v'chanan, erachapayim. If we want Him to forgive us, if we've made a terrible mistake, if we want to repair the relationship, if we have shame, regret, remorse, and we want to grow closer, then it's not just enough to say the right things. We have to do the right things as well. And that's what this parasha is all about. There's a lot more to say, but enjoy your excursions for the day. See everyone later today.